Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, y'all. This is Aisha popping in at the top of this week's show. And I could not let this week go by without acknowledging that it is now the day after the election, Wednesday, November 9th. And we now have a president, a new president, and his name is Donald Trump. And it's been really difficult processing it. I'm still processing it right now. And I have so many emotions and I can't even believe I somehow found the will to get out of my bed and come into the office today. But I'm here and I just wanted to offer everyone, you know, solidarity, send warm vibes. I hope everyone is taking really good care of themselves, whatever that means, whether it's, you know, watching your favorite movie. I've spent the day so far listening to Marvin Gaye and Solange and it's made me feel at least a little bit better. So I hope everyone is taking the time to deal with it, process it, and then after we've done that, we'll find ways to make things better. So I hope you all are taking very good care of yourselves and one way that you can feel free to do that is to listen to this episode, which I can promise you does not have anything to do with the election, uh, mostly because we recorded it before all of the Trump news came out. So I hope you guys enjoy and be well. The following podcast contains explicit language. She just called him down. Excuse me. Are you a man? This is the ladies' restroom. Yeah, we're aware of what it is. Thank okay, you. Uh, Thank sir, you. We're good. Sir, can you hear me? Because this is the ladies' restroom, and clearly that is a man. This is my father, and he's a woman, and he has every right to be in this bathroom. No, well, no, he does not. And you know what? I'm calling security because there are young women in here that you are traumatizing. Oh, really? Oh, you mean the little snickering here. bitches over there? What? Those, they look really traumatized. You don't, you don't talk to my children that way. Oh, and you don't even talk to my father like that. Your father. Hey, and welcome to a new episode of Represent. I'm Aisha Harris, your host. And we've got a really interesting show for you today. That clip you heard at the top of the show is from season one of Transparent. And I know what you're thinking. Here on the podcast, we just recently discussed the show a few weeks back. But on today's show, Transparent is only a small fraction of what we'll cover because my special guest is Nisha Ganatra, a veteran film and television director whose credits include that Jill Soloway hit, as well as Mr. Robot and the new FX series Better Things. She had a lot of fascinating things to reveal about her career, and I'm looking forward to sharing it with you all. But first, it's hard to believe, but only just under 50 years ago, interracial marriage was outlawed in over a dozen states. And it wasn't until 1967 when the Supreme Court ruled in favor of Mildred Loving, a black woman, and Richard Loving, a white man, and affirmed their marital status as a couple, that these laws were struck down. 
The new film, Loving, directed by Jeff Nichols and starring Ruth Nega and Joel Edgerton as the Lovings, tells their story in the years that preceded that historic Supreme Court decision and, since premiering at Cannes earlier this year, has been building some considerable Oscar buzz, especially for its two stars. And joining me to discuss it today is my lovely friend, John Oliveira, he of the fun web series A Brit and a Yank. Welcome back, John. Thank you so much for having me back. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about this movie with you. I don't know about you, but I've been hearing about it for a while now, especially since uh, the film premiered at Cannes earlier this year, and it's been getting a lot of buzz. And so I was very curious about it. I was also a little hesitant going into it because, you know, it is... I have this thing. I really have an active dislike for most biopics. And so going going into this, I was like, uh, I mean, it's a great story, but do I really need to see this in the form of a biopic? Like, I, I feel like documentaries often can do the job way better. Uh, but I'm curious to hear what you thought about it and sort of what your notions were before you went into the movie. Well, first of all, I'm absolutely kind of with you that I always think documentaries can do it better. And at the risk of sounding uninformed, when I sat down to see this movie, I had no idea that it was based on a true story. Wait, what? <laughs> I had zero clue. I, I literally went into this like completely blind. And it actually made me feel kind of bad afterward because I, I'm in an interracial relationship. You've been in interracial relationships. So it's because of this whole couple that I'm able to kind of exist right now. So I owe them a lot. So I felt a lot of gratitude to you for making me see the film, but I actually really love the story. Um, it was a beautiful film. I have some nitpicky things that we can discuss, though. Yeah. Yeah, I, I did, too. Um, <laughs> wow. Okay, so you have no idea this is a true story. but No did, idea. But did you know at least, like, the premise of it going into it? I knew the premise of it. I knew okay. it was going to be based on, you know, a, a white man and a black, a black woman that, you know, secretly got married and... Obviously, I knew but just based on the time alone, I was like, okay, well, if it's in the 1950s, some stuff is going to go down. That's not going to be so great. Right, right. And the trailer gives makes that very clear as well. Absolutely. And then after the movie, I did all this research on the movie. I, I read about the actual Supreme Court case mm. and just everything about it. And it's actually very, very inspiring. I think the movie is very important. There's actually a documentary on it that came out like a few years ago. Yeah. If, I rem if I'm remembering correctly, I think actually the director, Jeff Nichols, he was watching, if not that documentary, he was watching a documentary or a clip about the couple that sort of inspired him to make this movie to begin with. He wanted to tell this story. Um, so yeah, I, I haven't checked it out yet, but I definitely plan to. And if listeners have seen it and can recommend it, please let us know. Um, one thing that I liked about the film is that it doesn't open with, you know, based on a true story. It, Absolutely. And, right. So throughout the movie, it just plays as the story. And it's clearly set in the 50s and 60s. But you know, there's no clear indications until the end where they have the postscript and on the screen you see a little bit of uh, some some historical facts about what happened after the fact. So is that sort of when you discover that that like, oh, this is actually a real thing? These this couple were, I mean, were real. It, it's, it sort of started to dawn on me in the middle of the movie when, you know, they're living in Washington, D.C. because they had to move away from their state because of their marriage. I think they lived in Virginia. Right. And so at one point 
because um, Mildred is unhappy with living in D.C., she writes a letter to um, Robert F. Kennedy, who was the attorney general at the time. So I was like, okay, well, that sounds like, you know, something they wouldn't really make up. And then as the whole Supreme Court stuff started leading up, I was like, this has to be based on something real. And I'm just an idiot. <laughs> no, here's the thing. I think a lot of people, you know, we, we can easily live in a bubble. And I think there will be a lot of people who are just normal movie-going viewer in the public who might go into the film thinking the same thing. Yeah, I think it kind of helps people to go into it if they think that it's not a real story because, you know, biopics do detract people. You have to be very interested in the topic. But, I mean, I've studied, you know, Supreme Court cases, Brown versus Board of Education, and this one I don't think has ever come up in anything that I've studied. And I do think it's it's definitely an important case. It's very relevant to now in my life. And I guess I was just disappointed that I didn't know about it. Yeah. Well, let's get a little bit into the way this film unfolds, because even though this is the reason, I think the main reason why this even became a movie, we even we know about it in the first place is because of the Supreme Court decision. But the movie, to its credit, is not a like, it's not a courtroom drama. And that I think is what elevates it above both the biopic genre and the courtroom drama is that it's really mostly interest it's mostly interested in this couple Mildred and Richard played by Nega and Edgerton and it's not even about their falling in love which I also think it's great it starts off and it, it opens with them they are already in a relationship they are they're, they're not- more than a relationship he can't even get his hands off her I was like <laughs> we get it you love her back away <laughs> there's a lot of but but I mean the movie is called loving and we we should point out that as cliche as it may sound or as to to put upon as it may sound, their last names were actually loving. So, I mean, it just plays in very nicely to the fact that this movie is about showing how much they love each other and, and getting the point across that this is a movie about being in love despite all the odds. We open up with them and early, very early within the first like 10 minutes of the movie, we find out she's pregnant. And, and Jeff Nichols, he's he's a he's a white director, um, but he is from the South. He's originally from Arkansas. Most of his movies, if you haven't seen them, they're definitely worth checking out. He's in recent in recent years, he's kind of made a name for himself. He directed Mud, which starred uh, Reese, Reese Witherspoon and Matthew McConaughey from a f- few years ago. Earlier this year, he released Midnight Special, which also starred uh, Joel Edgerton. And most of his films are set in the South. And he's what I like, what I would call like an atmospheric director. He is great at creating a sense of place. And because he's from the South, he knows the South. And so what's great about Loving is that we see this couple, um, this black and white couple. And what we would normally get from, you know, a movie set during this time period, it, it actually begins in the late 50s because the, the court case took like... It took it took a good over a decade for the the case to even get to the Supreme Court and for all that to happen. And they had been together for years by then. So it, it starts off in the 50s and we don't see what we would usually see in a biopic like this where it's like you, you, you get I mean, you do see glimpses of it. You see people looking at them sideways, glancing at them sideways because they're out and about. And it's like, oh, this interracial couple, people whispering. <laughs> but really, more than that, you mostly see him being very comfortable amongst all the black people around him. And the black people, 
in, in her family and in this small town have embraced, like, they accept him. He's just chill. You see him hanging out at a party. He's got his arm around her. No one blinks an eye. Well, um, the black people accept him. Well, the bl- yes, the black people accept him. I mean, there, there's an occasional, there's, I think, one moment in, early on where they're in, like, a, they're in a store and he has her arm around her and a black, like, the black cashier later, he kind of looks at them. But it's not, it's not so much in, like, a this is you're both going to hell kind of way obviously it's in a like this doesn't look good like have yeah they, this they, isn't normal this is not you know what we're used to kind of way right right and so what i liked about that is that it just shows that you know the south is so complex and even in the 50s there were there was mingling it wasn't all segregated i mean yes obviously there was segregated water fountains and and dining and all that stuff but in certain parts of the South, and especially in the poorer parts of the South where poor whites and poor blacks were, you know, there was mingling and they did coexist and they were able to coexist. So I really appreciated that. Yeah, absolutely. There's also, you know, not knowing what state it was set in when the movie started, I was like, oh my God, what state is this? Because it, it did look like it was less taboo for a black a black woman and a, and a white guy to be together. So I was like, are they in Mississippi? Because, you know, I've always thought of Mississippi as like the deep south and very, you know, racially charged at that time. And then I was like, okay, they're in Virginia, which is fairly close to the north. It's, it's not the deep, deep south, but it's still the south. Virginia so. is still, <laughs> I, I mean, Virginia is still, maybe it's not Mississippi, but I think at that time period, there were plenty of places that were just as dangerous. They were just in a part of town. And and there is a, that scene with the sheriff. At some point, I guess we should back up a little bit. They they decide to go to the to DC to get married because they can't get married in Virginia. They come back and obviously the townsfolk are not having the white townsfolk are not having it. They arrest both of them and they um, they both spend the night in separate cells. And actually, she has to spend the entire weekend there, but he's able to be bailed out. And so he tries to go back and pick her up. And the sheriff, the white sheriff, he's he sort of is the, the main sort of stand in for all the terrible white people in the South. He he, he says he says at one point to to Richard, he's like, well, I feel bad for you. Like the, you, you think this is okay only because you are poor. Like you grew up around them, and so you've been sort of like co-opted, and you think that like this is okay. So it, I think that scene does a really good job of, of pointing out the sort of differences in class, the class systems that absolutely yeah that were established even within the South between super super poor and then like the more rural and not quite definitely not wealthy, but definitely not as poor white as Richard is. Yeah, I agree. And um, on a different note, they both really fell into the roles. I thought Ruth Negga was amazing. And Joel Edgerton really, like, I couldn't even recognize him at one point. I'm going to build you a house. Right here. Build it. Yes. Would you marry me? And, and and it's it's interesting because I think Ruth Nega actually looks a lot like the the actual um, Mildred Loving. Mildred Loving, yeah. In in many ways, they both have similar features. I think about the movie, not so much about the movie, but just about their real life story in general, is that this couple is what I like to call like reluctant heroes. Mm-hmm. It's not like they were 
really trying to fight for everyone's right, if, if that makes any sense. Like they just wanted to be happy themselves, which is fine. That's the American dream. Exactly. And I mean, again, that's another credit to the storytelling is that we 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 don't see the sort of positioning of them against the backdrop of all of this other radical civil rights stuff that was happening at the same time. I think we only have one scene and one moment where, and that's the moment you were talking about earlier where she writes to the then Attorney General RFK. Um, she's watching something on TV. I think she's watching the March on Washington, if I yeah. remember correctly. Yeah, she's watching at, everyone at, at MLK's I Have a Dream speech, I think. Right. So she's watching that, but like it's literally a minute. And that's really all we see of the the outside. And Nichols, in his in, in an interview he did with Consequence of Sound, and we can link to that in the show notes for you guys to check out. But he mentioned that, you know, what really drew him into the story was the fact that Mildred just wanted to go home. And she like, yes, D.C. was fine. But she says throughout the film, you know, like, I don't like it here. This isn't like. Urban living is not what I want. I like being in like the fresh air and I love having space. And, you know, it, it just kind of reminded me again of this, the, like, even though there are all these different aspects of the South that are so terrible and are and, and divide people so much, particularly by race, the fact that Nichols was able to connect in a way to this the story, like I think so many people from the South, I mean, I'm not from the South, but I have, you know, my family my extended family is a lot, large part of them are from the South. And that sense of like home is, is it, it never truly goes away, even if you never go back there. And can you imagine they get arrested and then they're sentenced and then in exchange for jail time, they agree to leave the state of Virginia for a sentence of 25 years. So they just are not allowed in the state at the same time, I believe it was. Yeah, that's a ridiculous like sentence to to do to anyone like you just can't cross the state border yeah it's it's kind of it's ridiculous and then they wind up you know she's pregnant and she says you know i i was hoping that your mother would deliver this baby and so they take that risk and then and it really upset me because i was like really you're gonna you're gonna you know deliver the baby in virginia and risk getting arrested and then risk having your baby grow up without their mom and dad i just thought that's why i say they're reluctant heroes because i think it was very Selfish. Like, honestly, can you imagine if they had moved to D.C. and then they had loved D.C.? We would have never had this whole case. Yeah. But just think about the fact that it's just another form, an extension of what happened during slavery, where families were ripped apart. And this is in both cases, this is basically a legal sort of dismantling of a black family. And it's just so it's very difficult. Of course, it's horrific. I don't blame her, even though she, you know, put her own freedom at risk by going back and seeing her family, but probably would have done the same. It's how can you be away from the people you love for something that's so stupid? It's love. I like to shift this a bit because we've obviously been praising it a lot, but I know you said you had some nitpicks and I have some nitpicks too. So I would like to hear. Oh, no, you first. Fine. So (laughs) I guess, and while I do think that it does avoid most of the cliches, as I mentioned before, I do think that there are Certain, mo- like, and they're very, very few and far between. But I was a little concerned about Nick Kroll being cast in a movie like this. He's a very goofy, funny guy. He sort of runs in the same circles as Seth Rogen, and and he has the Nick Kroll show. And, you know, I was concerned about that. But this role actually fits him pretty well because it's not it's not so much a, a serious role. He plays the attorney who is 
basically assigned to their case after she sends the letter to the attorney general. And he's the one who pushes it forward into the Supreme Court. But then there's a moment where he's talking to another lawyer who's going to help him. So you have these two I mean, I think the movie makes very clear they're two like Jewish lawyers. They're going to make this all work. And then at one point, the the guy says to him, well, you know, if it wins, it's going to be like the most most historic case ever. Like he says something like that. And I was just like, like, do we have to say that? Like that sort of counters all of all of the great stuff that's happened so far and not making this seem like as big of a deal as or like as inflated as it could have been. And so that was probably one of my nitpicks. I also felt like there's too much of the, you know, we're going to show them being affectionate sort of thing. And I know that sounds sort of backwards and I liked it to some extent, but then it also felt at some points that it was just like, okay, like you said, we get it. We, oh, yeah. <laughs> it would have been nice to see them sort of in their element, just laughing and joking. And you sort of see that you have that moment with Michael Shannon's character. Michael Shannon plays, um, he plays the photographer from life who's there to take their photo. And he takes what is, I think, the sort of signature photo of them in real life uh, sitting on the TV and watching a TV show and laughing. And that was like a really great moment. And I wish oh, we could have had. Favorite scene. Right. Absolutely. It, it was such a great moment. I wish we could have seen more of that or seen them just having have a normal conversation that was just them engaging and being with each other. And not just being overly affectionate. Like it, it would. I think that's. I think that was what my my issue was with the overly affectionate part. I thought that was great, and that's important to show. But then I also think. But then why? I agree with you. Why are these people together? Like what? Yeah. What are the things that they have in common other than each other? Exactly. It just seemed like they kind of had that whole like kind of annoying love quality. Like we can't be away from each other for more than an hour, but we don't know why they feel that way about each other. And even I I know for time, they had to obviously accelerate things. But it's like when they get to D.C., it's like one scene they get there, the next scene she's pregnant again. And then the next scene she's pregnant again. (laughs) So it's like, okay, come on, like a little bit more depth. But also to your earlier thing, if I had to nitpick it, it's a story about the two of them. It's a story about love. And then all of a sudden you have scenes of them, you know, just quietly trying to deal with their life. And then all of a sudden they're in front of a whole bunch of cameras at the Supreme Court and media. And then they're back at home in another scene and it's kind of quiet again. Nobody's bothering them. And then back in front of TV reporters. So it was kind of hard kind of merging the two. If I, it's a little, it takes you kind of out of one story and throws you into another and then throws you back. But again, I'm just nitpicking because I do think the movie was beautifully made and beautifully acted. Yeah. And there are so many other ways this movie could have gone wrong. The other thing I will say is that at the beginning, I was a little worried that it was centering his story too much. And I think we see a lot of him, you know, dealing with these things. And part of it is plot, like... But we we don't see her so much dealing with being in jail for an entire weekend. We see him on the outside, and I was worried. Yeah. I was like, oh, "Why are we? Why aren't we getting her side?" But I think as the movie progresses, it balances it out more, and we see more of her and her sort of perspective. So, absolutely. I mean, I th- I feel like she fueled the entire plot of the film. Like I could feel her desperation. I could feel her sadness, and he kind of just goes along with whatever she wanted. So without her, we have a lot to thank her for because she's the reason that, you know, things actually happened. She wrote that letter. She's the one that decided to move back to Virginia. She said, I have to have my baby there. I have to have, you know, be close to my family. So yeah, for sure. So I think 
we can wrap this conversation up by saying Ruth Nega for Best Actress Oscar nomination, maybe? Absolutely. She was amazing. As was Joel Edgerton. He was also very, very good. Yeah, Joel Edgerton, he's... I really, really loved him in this role. And yeah, I I think we can both highly recommend this film for people to see. Absolutely. It's very moving. Well, let's, before you go, John, let's move to our Plus or Delta segment. And listeners, just so you know, you know, we have a, we have a little bit of a, a, a lag here. We're recording this a little bit more than a week before this episode will air. So our Plus Deltas might be a little dated by the time you hear this, but just know they'll probably still be pluses and deltas when you're listening to it. So we might also have a woman president by the time you hear this. We might. Uh, I hope so. If only because the other options are so bleak. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, John, what is your plus or delta? You can start with either, whichever you want to do first. I'll start with my plus because this morning, um, GLAAD released a Where We Are on TV report. And for the first time, we have an all-time high in the number of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender and queer characters on TV, which is great. We're we're representing 4.8% right now, or 43 out of 895 series regular roles. So still got a way to go, but it's definitely not a bad thing. Yeah, that's, I mean, we we will always have a way to go, but it is, it's great to see things slowly on the uptick, at least, and this is only TV, right? Not film. Only TV. But, you know, as we are on Slate Represent, I'm feeling a little bit represented. That's good. These are are good things. Ah, I'm so excited. What's your plus? Oh, well, my plus is that as of yesterday, Mila Kunis, she released this sort of uh, a little essay about her experiences as a woman in Hollywood. And it's, you know, we've, we've seen a lot of these essays in the past. And I think the more we see a famous woman speaking up about things in the industry that are not okay, um, I think the better. And so this one, in this story, she, and this, I will point out that this was on the website A+, which I think, yeah, her husband, Ashton Kutcher, actually co-founded. But anyway, on this site, she wrote about how she re- like refused once to, to pose like semi-nude for a a magazine cover in order to promote a film and a producer basically told her like you are never like you're done in this town you're never gonna get anywhere because she didn't do it and she also talks about how there have been you know instances where people have wanted to hire her solely because she's you know married to Ashton Kutcher and all these other things and it's a really fascinating uh look into the way so much of just casual discussion of of opportunities and job opportunities especially in Hollywood are so gendered and the fact that she like spoke up and was like this is not okay and we need to change the way we talk about this I think was a great thing and I'm glad she did it and we'll put a link to it in the in the show notes but i definitely recommend everyone read it i also just really like mila kunis in general she's wonderful and it's great that she's in a position where she feels secure enough now that she can say these things right i mean it sucks that you have to get to that point to be able to say these things without feeling the 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 very high blowback but it's i i'm glad i'm glad that once people are getting to those points that they are saying stuff so what is your delta for this week well, my Delta is just kind of a little silly, but um, 
last night, Wednesday, Beyonce performed with the Dixie Chicks at the CMAs <laughs> and they sang Daddy Lessons. And it was an amazing performance. So much energy. I was happy to see her there. Majority of the reaction was great. And then, of course, there's always, you know, some rotten eggs who were just unhappy to see a black woman, specifically Beyonce, at the CMAs. And it got me thinking about how country music is just such a, you know, majority white audience and performers. And I think there's only like Darius Rucker from Hootie and the Blowfish is the only black person or person of color in general that I can think of who's successful in the country music world. Right now. It just saddens me right now anyway. But country music is really for everyone. So also country music has its root roots in black culture. I mean, let's just like most pretty much I mean, it's not that different, dissimilar from rock in the way it's sort of morphed into this majority white culture. But, you know, you think of someone like Ray Charles, who in his like throughout his career, but especially in his early career, did a ton of country, like just straight up country songs. So for these people to be upset that Beyonce is 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 playing the CMAs is just ridiculous. Oh, God. Yeah, there was a bunch. Of, Beyonce should know her place. She does not belong at the CMAs. I was like, calm down. Yeah. I mean, there was also it wasn't I think a lot of it wasn't even just directed at Beyonce. That was also the Dixie Chicks and the fact that people, despite the fact that, that I thought we all agreed at this point that George Bush was wrong. People are still upset about the fact that the, the Dixie Chicks called them out, called, called George Bush out before a lot of other people were willing to. And so you have this intersection of country people who hate Dixie Chicks and who also are like, what the hell is Beyonce doing here? It's just like the perfect storm of hatred and misogyny and all these other things that unfortunately so many people in our country still love to spout. So for my Delta, there was a really great piece by Wesley Morris in the New York Times that came out last week. And it's a long read. If you haven't read it yet, you should definitely go read it. But it's called... Last Taboo, Why Pop Culture Just Can't Deal with Black Male Sexuality. And essentially, the crux of the piece is is in that, that headline. This is not, the Delta is not about the piece itself. The Delta is about the reactions, which admittedly are very predictable, but they also proved his exact point that he was trying to make with the piece. And the, the tweets were just so disheartening to me and and made me really, really depressed my my thing is is if you can't deal with it then don't engage with it like if that like just don't like live in your bubble and deal with it but the way in which people responded like why are we even talking about this why is this guy obsessed with black penises it it just blows my mind that we we there are so many people who still have this mentality and still have these thoughts and it was interesting. Our you know friend of the show and recurring guest host Alex Jung, um, he recently saw Moonlight again, and he tweeted about going to the movies to see it. And there were people in the audience who were laughing at moments when you know there shouldn't be laughing. Laughing at two men kissing. Laughing at two men being affectionate with one another. And the fact that, and it's just I don't know. I don't know what else there is to say. It's just really disheartening. And I wish people would just, instead of putting all of that negativity into the world, if you don't like it, just don't friggin' don't don't deal with it. Don't engage with it. Live your life. Be bigoted. Be closeted. We don't. The rest of us don't need to know it. I don't know. I feel like the laughter thing is just their own insecurities, and I don't know. It's just you're right. It's upsetting. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. 
And Verilyn also has additional thoughts to add. I mean, there is this idea of like being like not woke yet. Like if you see something and it makes you feel something that you weren't expecting, maybe uncomfortable. And then you take that and go read a book <laughs> or you take that and go like talk to your friend about it and like actually process it. Yeah. Then so that's, if you explore it. Yeah. Then that's then that's fine. Like have I'm happy that you saw Moonlight. It stirred this up on you. And then you went to go deal with it with your people, you know, but don't tweet at it to the public, uh, to the person that wrote it. Like, it's not their responsibility to hear your thoughts. Like, yeah. Yeah. So go check out Wesley's piece. And also, I don't want to plug Moonlight again. People are going to think I'm like working for him. I'm just (laughs) saying it's a good movie. (laughs) Go see, go see Loving, go see Moonlight, go see things that challenge you, things that you, that will surprise you. Just be open. So thank you, John, for coming on again. It was so great to have you. Thanks for having me as always. You're the best. Ah, so are you. And where can folks find you online? You can find us. And what I mean by us is a Brit and a Yank. I'm the Yank and my friend James is the Brit. We do comedy videos on YouTube. You can find us at a Brit and a Yank. We just did a video with Kathy Griffin that got over a million views. So I'm super pumped. Yeah. And Kathy will actually be our next guest coming up on the next episode. So everyone can very much look forward to that. We had a really, really fun conversation. So yay. Thanks, John. Thank you. Welcome back. So often when we discuss film and TV, and I'm guilty of this too, we lay all of the credit or the blame, depending upon the work, on either the showrunner and his or her's writer's room or the actors on screen. Unlike in the movies, with rare exception, it's very easy to ignore the direct-read television episodes and the work that goes into what they do, because they're usually not the creator or writer of the show, and rarely are they behind the camera for the entirety of a season, much less of a series. But television directing isn't strictly a work-for-hire gig, and my guest today, industry vet Nisha Ganatra, is proof of that. Nisha has worked on a slew of TV shows, including Transparent and Mr. Robot. And during our very candid conversation, she talked to me about how she brings her own perspective to each project she works on, while revealing firsthand just how important it is to have as many different kinds of people in the room to contribute to creative decisions. We also chatted about her first feature film, Chutney Popcorn. It's a deeply personal movie that captures a different side of both the first-generation immigrant experience and the lesbian experience than we're used to seeing in popular culture. Thank you so much for joining me today, Nisha. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to kick it off by, I know that you're an NYU alum. You were at Tisch studying film. And so I'd love to know what led you to film school in the first place and to choose filmmaking as a career. Yeah, well, I guess... It's it's so funny. I, I think about this now because there was no idea of filmmaking as a career. Like, you know, I'm I'm making all these assumptions about you that you're also um, first generation Indian American. <laughs> Are you? No, I'm not. <laughs> oh, OK. No. I just made this total assumption. No, nope, I'm black. <laughs> is it the name that you that it is you the name? That's hilarious. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm. Yeah. Nope. I'm black. Black American. <laughs> oh, my God. I love that. I um <laughs> I I used to teach for um, Planned Parenthood, and and most of my students were mostly, were um, almost like 90% black at the schools I was teaching, and they would say, what's your real name? And I was like, Nisha. And they would just say, like, 
just Nisha? And I was like, just Nisha. And they were like, not Tanisha. And I was like, nope. Like, and it was this great, like, amazing thing where the students were like, we know you're black and you were not telling us your full name. And I was like, okay. It's <laughs> really. Wow. So I love that I just like turned that all around on you. <laughs> hey, like, I love it. It's great. But yeah, no, I, I am not. <laughs> it's so funny. But uh, yeah, so for me, my parents came from India and um, I was raised here and I didn't really know that there was such a career as directing or filmmaking. It was really, I loved watching movies. I loved television, but I didn't even, I think I didn't even understand there was a TV industry until very recently. I think I was always trying to tell stories and interested in telling stories. And then um, it was one of those things where one day there was a film sort of shooting at a house down the street and all the kids in the neighborhood were running down there and looking at what was happening. And it was the first time I kind of saw, oh, there are all these people behind the scenes putting that together. Where did you grow up? Oh, I my family moved every year. Okay. <laughs> so it was like, you know, Vancouver and then Los Angeles and then Houston and then Louisiana and Saudi Arabia and New York. It was kind of all over the world. We wow. just kept moving every year. Yeah. But this happened to be in um, in Los Angeles. Mm. And then I went to college and I still didn't know what I wanted to do. I thought I was going to become a lawyer because I knew I wasn't going to become a doctor. That was kind of <laughs> the one thing I did know. And while I was in school, I was doing my pre-law major, but I was sneaking into all of the film classes all the time. And it took a roommate of mine to say, hey, you know what? You seem to be spending all of your free time at the media library and watching movies and you're sneaking into film classes. Like maybe this is something you should look into. So they had these internships and I did an internship, which basically meant you were a free PA on a movie set. But I also started looking at the job of director and saying, oh, I want to do what that person's doing. Where's that person coming from? And mm. there seemed to be no way to work your way up into the spot of director on a movie set. It seemed like you had to I don't know. They were sort of bringing them in from the secret location. And then <laughs> I figured out that that secret place was film school. And so I just thought, you know, there are so many different ways to become a filmmaker. But for me, I had no family in the industry, like no connections. Nobody was going to um, help open a door. And I just thought the best and fastest way for me to get in there is to go to film school. So I applied to NYU. And then when I got in, I I just went. So I really arrived at film school not knowing anything about how movies are made and what's entailed and no sense of the craft, just a deep passion and wanting to tell stories. And how did your family feel about you uh, going to film school? Um, I didn't tell them. <laughs> I didn't really tell them. Okay. Um, <laughs> so well, I'm I sure they know now, right, at this point? Now, now they know. <laughs> yeah. At the time, um, my mom, you know, was working so hard. And so I just sort of kept calling it graduate school. <laughs> and then my mom, I think after I got in and I was really proud of getting in, I told her what the program was. And I think she just didn't really understand what it was or get it. She just thought okay, well, my daughter's going to graduate school. I mean, I, I see, so your debut feature, um, and I think maybe your first on-screen credit was the 1990 fil 1999 film Chutney Popcorn. Um, mm -hmm. and, and you wrote and directed and also starred in the movie. Um, and I see some some similarities between yourself 
and the character, at least the way you're talking about your mom right now. Um, for those <laughs> for those who haven't uh, seen it, it's a it's a movie in which you, Nisha, play Nira, who's an Indian American lesbian. Uh, who wants to become a surrogate mother for her sister and her husband who can't have a baby due to their um, own medical issues. And but it's also about you, you sort of being your character is sort of a black sheep of the family in that, Mm -hmm. you know, your sister, she's she's like a children's book editor. Well, you you are a photographer or an aspiring photographer and you also um, work and you you create henna designs and the mother in the movie who's very funny she like doesn't understand your what you're doing and she just kind of I mean she doesn't it doesn't seem like she is ashamed per se although maybe she is a little bit but she just doesn't <laughs> understand what she's doing and it just seems like you put a lot of yourself into that first debut feature like what was that like for you um definitely i mean the char- the mom character in that movie is is very much my mom i mean almost i think her lines of dialogue are pretty verbatim like things my mom said because mm-hmm. there's i mean some of those lines there's no way i could make that stuff up you know she just really said those things um but yeah i think it was the 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 big tenant of NYU film school was don't add to the crap that's already out there. Like if you're if you don't have something to say or an original story to tell, then just don't be a filmmaker. You know, they were really clear about it. Just do not keep doing what's already there. And so I think because of that and because of those that support system and that training, the it was really encouraged to tell a personal story and the whole reason I wanted to be a filmmaker was to not just tell stories about women and and minorities, but really about Indian Americans, because I just hadn't seen any movie that was the Indian American experience or had Indian American characters that wasn't um, also about being Indian American, you know? Mm-hmm. And then as a lesbian, I, I had seen so many movies about the coming out experience, but just wanted the next movie, the one where okay, you know, like my character Reno's gay. Nobody had a problem with the fact that she was gay. And, you know, it wasn't everyone talking about, um, oh, my God, I'm gay. It was like, okay, you're gay. But really the issue is um, your sister can't have a baby. And what are you going to do? And how is this family going to stay together? Yeah, I mean, to me, that was one of the things that stood out the most when I was watching the movie. Like you mentioned, was the fact that this movie wasn't... uh, what I expected it to be going into it. It was very much more focused, less on the coming out experience and the first generation immigrant experience and more on these relationships that you are having with your your sister, with your mother, and also your girlfriend who doesn't want to necessarily be a mother um, in, in the relationship of that. And mm-hmm. it felt like more of like a, a story about the way we, the different ways in which we look at the idea of the traditional, quote unquote, traditional family and how we can change those ideas. Um, because it, it is like even your character in the movie that you don't have a father, your father wasn't there. And so there mm-hmm. were a lot of really interesting things going on there. And I, I just it was it was refreshing to see, especially a movie that came out, you know, almost 20 years ago. It feels like, you know, even today we still have so many stories and not that they're not important about coming out and about the immigrant experience, but like the fact that you were able to make that back then is just really astounding, I think. Thank you. Yeah, it was very, it was really important, I think, 
when I, I remember when I interviewed for film school, they asked me why I wanted to go to NYU Film School and what I wanted to do there. And I remember just sort of talking about seeing the Joylet Club in theaters and thinking, whoa, I have not seen that. You know, I've not seen the Asian American experience. And there's so many stories that need to be told and just women alone, like centering women and our stories and our voices and just how tired I was of going to movies and seeing the male character talk forever. And then the woman would just sort of nod when they cut to her. <laughs> and then, you know, I was like, where are my friends? Where are, where are my loud mouth, like really amazing women that I know? Like, why aren't we on screen? Why are we invisible? And it was such a political, like, action to just represent because I also was super inspired when I saw Grinder Chada was making movies like Baji on the Beach and Bend It Like Beckham. And I just was mm. like, oh, okay, there's the British Indian experience, you know, mm-hmm. but or um, Mississippi Masala came out, but it was still the like Indian from, you know, Africa experience. And so it was just sort of what about that first generation here and um, living between cultures, you know, mm-hmm. and it seems like now I get to go back and see like what my first inspiration was to talk about. And it seems like um, it's going to be my sort of life long obsession is going to be identity and all the different ways we can explore identity in stories and in film and now television. Do you find that somewhat exhausting to any extent? Um, or, is that, <laughs> is, or is that something? Because I know it's like it can be a lot to feel like you always have to be representing yourself, whether it's through your sexuality or through your your gender or your race or all of those things like does that ever get tiring for you or does that like just motivate you oh no I'm I do not get tired by it I'm like obsessed with it and um and really excited to to be able to tell stories from that point of view over and over because there's so many different aspects to it and it's always changing you know I remember um you know, reading that Disney Channel was going to set a movie in India. And, you know, I wasn't like a fan of Disney Channel type (laughs) things, but I remember thinking, oh, shit, like that is going to be the introduction of Indian culture to a whole generation of kids. And I really want to have a say in how that's portrayed, you know, rather than let me just hope those like that white guy they hired to write it gets it right. You know, mm-hmm. I just was like, let me go in there and meet with them and talk about it and see if I can help and and shape that in some way because it just was, it's more exciting to me to, to be able to get in there and work on it and not just sort of go to the theater and cringe, you know? Mm-hmm. And was that was that a recent movie or is it, or TV is it a TV show you're talking no, about? No, no, sorry. That was um they had a series called The Cheetah Girls and uh, Oh, The Cheetah Girls. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, and that was when they'd set one in India or something and I remember uh, just being like, "Oh no, what's happening?" <laughs> <laughs> so so you went in there and you But that was a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. Um yeah, and then I sort of pitched a a rewrite on it um because you know the original like draft which uh, to their credit they knew was not like the thing they should be shooting mm-hmm. had like some pretty stereotypical stuff in it that, you know, was hurtful and just was not right. And I just am so happy that it got headed off at the pass, you know, and not just put out there as okay. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And part of it too was that there was an Indian American executive who worked there at the time who also, I think, 
maybe in her own way was trying to stop the sort of ignorance in a way, you Mm -hmm. know, and try to like say, okay, well, maybe, you know, every story isn't everyone's to tell, you know, even on Transparent, how Jill Soloway, um, you know, on her own said, okay, you know what, it's wrong that I didn't have a trans writer on the staff and let me do that for season two and self-correct it like right away, you know, Mm -hmm. and and even SNL, I kind of feel like if everyone can take a lesson from Lorne Michaels, like they get criticized for not having a black woman on the show and right away said, you know what, you're right, we're sorry, we fucked up and then changed it like instantly. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I kind of feel like that's the proper response. That's how you should do things, not just say, oh, let's make a diversity committee or let's have a diversity action meeting or whatever. Like, just do it. You know? sure. like, do it quickly and swiftly. Yeah. And I mean, and that highlights the importance also of of people speaking up and calling other people out. Exactly. You mentioned Transparent, which you, you worked on. And I would love to move into a discussion sort of how you got into primarily TV directing, um, because that is, it's a very different sort of world from what I understand from feature film directing. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious as to like what that looks like, because I haven't really talked to many, to too many people who have done TV directing. And so like, what are the sort of major differences between that and creating a feature film and directing in that capacity? Well, when you're directing your feature film, it's really um, your vision and your uh, story to tell. And it's an incredibly collaborative art. So it's never like, this is my thing. It's always you, the DP, the designer, the actors, the, um, you know, the crew that comes together to, to build this one amazing piece of art is um, incredible. And, in TV, that one person is usually the creator or the showrunner. So directing a TV show, you are either um, helping sort of that showrunner serve their vision or you're helping the writers sort of elevate their material into a more cinematic expression. For a transparent, exa- for example, the goal of that for the whole series to feel like it was written and directed by one person. Mm. And you directed, like, I think, three episodes of season one, um, including the MAPA episode, which is an mm-hmm. earlier earlier episode from season one. And there's a lot going on there in terms of, you know, you have Mora and there's a scene where Mora and Ali and Sarah all go to the mall. Before brunch, they get enticed by one of those people, <laughs> salespeople trying to sell mm-hmm. makeup. Hi. How would you ladies like to be among the first people in L.A. to sample a new plant-based skincare line by Canticle? No. This stuff is liquefied miracles. Oh, no. I have to we're gonna, we're going to brunch. We'll do it. At Patio on the Green? Yeah. And, yeah. and then follow, following that up, the, you have the bathroom scene. I don't really have to go that bad. So. I do. All right. Dad, if you have to go in front of me, that's fine. Because I don't have to go. No, Ellie has to go. Should I say dad? Is that a man? I don't know. I don't know. Hey, Mom. What? Do you see the little person over there with the gray hair? Mm-hmm. I think it's a guy. She just called him down. Excuse me. Are you a man? This is the ladies' restroom. Yeah, we're aware of what it is. Thank okay, you. Ahead, Thank sir. you. We're good. Sir. I'm curious just as to how you guys approach that scene in particular, because that is a very sensitive scene, and it's also a very crucial moment to the the, the story. Yeah, the, that scene in MAPA was really... Um, it was, I think... Th- the burden of responsibility was felt the most by me in telling that sequence. Um, and Jill was really specific with um, 
her her thing was, you know, I really want the the beauticians at the store to be gay men. I really want to make this comment about the gay male culture in this store being the holders of, you know, the keepers of beauty and the beauty industry. And I was like, okay, so there's that, you know, very personal political thing going on. Then there's just the characters themselves and what they're going through. And then there was the added responsibility of we're doing a bathroom scene. And the trans community had been so sensitive about the scene because it has been done so wrong in the past, you know, and Mm -hmm. because it's been used for titillation and because it's been used in all the sort of, um, you know, to me, wrongest ways. It was a really important scene. And I think I was aware of the historical significance because of our trans consultants, Reese and Zachary. But because we're so immersed at this point, um, by the time I was shooting it, I was already, the goal was for all of that information and all of the knowledge to be so immersive that you could continue to work from instinct. So that you were informed and thoughtful and knowledgeable so that you could relax and work from your artistic instinct. And um, God, I'm just saying that to you and I'm realizing I had this amazing professor at film school named Carol Dysinger who I, you know, I was very politically active in school and she once sat me down and just said, you need to stop trying to make your films active, uh, like political, and just trust that you're a political person so your films will be too, you know? And it's something you can't really hear in your early 20s that you're just like, what, you know? And But now I'm hearing myself say this and I was like, oh, that's what she was talking about. <laughs> but um, God, teachers, it's so thankless in the moment, right? But right. they change your lives forever. <laughs> um, so when I was doing the scene, I think I was so immersed and, and so knowing that this is the point of view. This is really hurtful to Maura. This is what's happening to Allie. She's going to hide in the bathroom and freak out. This is what's happening to Sarah. Her anger is going to finally burst through. And um, who is the actress that we can trust to play this character that is um, angry and upset? And how can we humanize her as well? And yet let's make sure we do not sacrifice the character of Maura to make a political point. You know, yeah. and so what happens in that scene sequence is, you know, exactly what you described. And Maura tries to use the bathroom, gets, you know, humiliated and horrified and is runs out of there. And the next scene that was written was that after sort of saying goodbye to her daughters, Maura um, sees a construction site and goes to the construction site and uses the porta potty there. And that sequence to me was always complete, you know, was that was the final moment in that sequence. So we really needed to shoot that. But it got so that people were so nervous about the porta potty scene that it got cut from the script. And, um, and then I was shocked that it got cut. And I said, Hey, this is a really important moment. I really want to shoot it. And then Jill was like, you know, um, go talk to Reese and Zachary about it. And they were like, well, you know, because of what's happened and because of the history, we don't want to show this. How are you, how are you going to show that Maura, uh, is, you know, is Maura standing up? Is Maura sitting down? Like this is all going to be, um, fodder, you know? And so in my mind, I had always seen the sequence as, and this is when you realize, oh, you need to explain what you're doing in television in a way, because in my mind, the sequence was always a close up of Maura's face with this blue wash over it so that 
you didn't quite know where she was or what she was doing. And then I was going to cut outside and see the porta potty and know that that's what she, where she had ended up. Mm-hmm. But, um, but of course, to anybody reading the script, they would have been mortified to think, "Oh my God, what's going to happen? How is the sequence going to be shot? Are you going to show Maura standing in a porta potty? Are you going to show Maura sitting in a? Both are problematic, you know." Mm-hmm. So we ended up shooting it. I had to sort of have an argument to shoot it and said, if it's offensive to you later, we can talk about it or take it out of the cut. But let me at least do it and see what you think, you know. But the but the bathroom sequence itself, every um, member of our crew who was trans came to shooting that day. And whether they were working on that episode or not, they were standing there at the monitor um, watching to make sure you know and thankfully and I was in the bathroom with the actors and doing the scene and I remember just being like okay we got that I have to come outside now we have to turn around the cameras and do the other side and I walked to the monitor and the whole community was there at the monitor just crying and it was just a moment where you realized okay this is powerful and upsetting and healing also you know and Mm -hmm. we all just had to hold each other and and say, okay, you know, and I had to, like, just take a moment to check in and say, is this, is this right? Is there anything that is not correct about your experience? Like, how can we do this better? And it's, it's that kind of inclusion, you know, that I think leads to a really powerful scene that everybody was so invested in. Let's make sure we tell this moment right. Yeah. So for my final question, you mentioned a few movies and TV shows earlier, but I would love to know the last time you felt represented on screen where you saw something that you yourself had not created or been a part of and you felt, oh, this speaks to me in some way, shape or form. Hmm. You know, I I feel like I'm so fortunate right now that the last several things I've worked on have felt that way to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that's not exactly your question, but, you know, better things in the sense of being a single mom was really fun to see those stories represented transparent with all this sort of diversity of queer culture was fun. Um, Mr. Robot in the sense that you got to see more than two brown actors in one episode yeah. all playing different parts. And you they're know? not related. And, <laughs> and they're not related. And right now, you know, I remember when... When Grey's Anatomy came out, I remember it was the first time you were like, oh, there's a black doctor and another black doctor and another black doctor. And they're not (laughs) married or related or, you know, or it was kind of an Asian doctor. And you were like, what? Yeah. But you walk into any hospital in this country and you can't like not see an Indian doctor, a Filipino nurse, like any, you know, it's just crazy to me that TV doesn't have that when that's the reality. So I'm trying to think of when was the last time I saw something exactly on TV where I felt like, oh, my God, that was sort of my story and I didn't tell it. And maybe you um, haven't seen it in a while. Maybe, you know, yeah, it might have been like Bend It Like Becca. Maybe it was way back then. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's a long time. Maybe it was. Well, thank you so much again for coming on the show. It was a pleasure to speak with you. And I'm looking forward to seeing more of your work. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It was really fun to get to think about these things and talk about them. That's all for today. I found this conversation really enlightening and hope you all did too. 
Thanks again, Tanisha, for coming on the show. And thank you so much, John, for joining me again. It was awesome to talk about loving with you. As always, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Megaphone, Stitcher, or any other place you find your podcasts. And please, if you haven't done so yet, please rate us on iTunes. We really appreciate your support. Represent is produced by the lovely and awesome Verilyn Williams. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is chief content officer at Panoply. And you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Slate Represent. The music you're hearing right now is performed by the sweet San Francisco funk soul band Midtown Social. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>